Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. Thinking through this passage, really, I think it's, uh, it's deeply applicable to us. It's a few chapters where we get another glimpse, another look at what our king is really like. When we read about David and all the people who come and stand against David, even when we read about them, as we'll see Absalom in a second. When we read about David, we're reading about God's chosen king. And so when the light shines on him, this is something we really need to remember through this whole series. When the light shines on him and we look at David... The shadow that he casts is Jesus-shaped. And that's not always true. Often David is standing in darkness and he casts no Jesus-shaped shadow at all. We've looked at some of those, those stories in recent weeks. But this week we'll see, we'll see somebody who really doesn't look like Jesus. And we'll see David um, doing things that Jesus would do in future years, pointing us towards God's king and what he is really like. And so in times of sadness, in times of suffering, in times when we're walking through that valley... We need to look up and remember what our king is really like. And that is what 2 Samuel helps us to do. Um, I learned this week, I've been at theological college, I learned this week we were doing Old Testament narrative that 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, Jesus actually puts them in the category of prophecy, not of history and narrative and writings like Psalms and Ruth and Esther and all those kind of stories. That even though these are history and, and stories, they're actually prophecy. What do they point towards? Well, they tell us of somebody who would come somebody now we live, when we do, who has come already. They point us to the Lord Jesus. So as we go through, as we look at Absalom, we're supposed to learn what Jesus is not. And as we look at David and David's friends, we're supposed to look at and learn who Jesus is. So I've got two points really today. Um, The first is this. Reject, uh, resist, Prince Charming. And the second point, when we get to look at David is this, that we're to commit ourselves to the king in reverse. I hope that sounds a bit cryptic and kind of keeps you going until we get to that. But let me ask you to begin with, uh, what makes a good friend? We'll see in a minute when we get to David's story that he has three good friends that come alongside him. Um, But what makes a good friend for you? Maybe somebody who sticks with you through thick and thin. I wonder if you've got a friend like that, a friend like some of the characters that we have in this story. I wonder if you are a friend like that to others. Are you somebody who helps, who's loyal, who comes alongside, who points, uh, points your friends to the Lord Jesus, to the real king that we should follow? But have, have a look, first of all, at Prince Charming. Let's read from um, 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. This is page 319. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land. Then everyone who has a complaint or case would come to me, 
and I would see that he receives justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. What's going on there? Well, this is Prince Charming um, in all of his glory. Prince Charming who gets himself an entourage and a chariot and lots of horses. If you're around at Rooted this week, uh, we'll look at why you shouldn't do that if you're a king of Israel. I mean, none of us will ever be that, but Absalom really shouldn't have done that. That's not what kings of Israel do. That's what the kings of the nations around, the kings of nations who don't follow God, that's what they do. But Absalom wants to be king. Absalom wants to come across as Prince Charming, so he gets himself his um, nice wheels, gets himself a big entourage of fighting men, and gets up at the crack of dawn. What a great king this guy would be. When he, you know, the early bird, he catches the worm. So up gets Absalom dead early in the morning and goes to the city gate to meet the poor and the struggling, those people who've suffered injustice. And we might think for a minute, well, he's a pretty impressive king, isn't he? He looks the part. He seems to get up and... and uh, want to get to work. He's not one of these lazy sons of kings who just kind of assume all their privilege and, and carry on. Now, Absalom seems like he's going to be a great king. And so for David, at least from these first few verses, we might think David is in, in line for a great retirement. You know, that kind of restful retirement where you can just spend time with the grandchildren, where he can relax and, and rest and try and forget all of those hard things that he's been through. Do you remember? All of that chasing and being chased around by Saul in the desert, all of that fighting with Goliath and the Philistines over and over again, all of that making peace in the land and dealing with people and justice and injustice and being the king is a tiring job. So you can imagine that David now, he's probably in his 60s, 70s, really getting towards the end of his reign in this story, that David now is just looking forward to a retirement and then here comes a king or a potential king, a prince, who looks the part, who gets up early and works hard, and seems like he might be a brilliant heir and replacement. But I wonder if you saw what was going on, that this isn't just Absalom trying to audition or trying to win the hearts of the people before he's passed power. No, this is Absalom going behind his father's back and trying to steal away the hearts, trying to deceive the people of Israel, trying to get them to follow him before David's even out of the picture, trying to get them to be on his side for a coup, did you see how Absalom was doing that? Whenever somebody came to the gates, when he was up at the crack of dawn, he would say, oh, where are you from? And the, if they said they were from the tribes of Israel, that is not Judah, Judah was David's tribe, but from the tribes of Israel, as in those other tribes who don't have the king on the throne, well, if it was from those tribes, then he would call them over and ask them what the problem was. And then he would get his kind of empathy face on, because, mm, you know, whenever they said something, he'd go, mm, uh, oh, you're so right. You're, it sounds like you've been treated terribly. And whenever they had a story, you see, he would agree with them and say, you're in the right. It sounds to me like you've been wronged, like you're the victim here. But there's nobody who's going to answer your case. I'm really sorry. I mean, we're here early in the morning before any of the royal officials but, have got here, but don't tell anyone that. But let me assure you, trust me, I'm Absalom, Right? Trust me, there's nobody who's going to hear your case. And so he turns people away, these people of Israel, not from David's tribe, says that they've got the right case, that they're in the right, that, that they're the victims, but that nobody will bother to listen to them, that they're too small, maybe, for King David, that they're not of the right tribe, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, of David. 
But if I was king, you could trust me. You could count on me. And then when they bow down or try to, to kind of pay him homage and say, I'll follow you, Absalom, he, he turns on the charm even more and grabs them by the elbow and says, no, 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 don't, don't need, we don't need all of that. Just give me a crutch. Kiss me like, like an equal, like a brother. You don't need to bow to me like a king. I'm Absalom. I'm a man of the people. You see what he's doing? It really works as well. Verse 6, Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Do you see what he's doing? First thing he's doing is dividing the people. He knows that there's been beef between, there's been um, frustrations, struggles between the tribes in the past. The former king, Saul, was from a, a different tribe. And when David comes and takes over, it's God who does that, by the way. He doesn't spill a drop of of Saul's family's blood. In fact, he even welcomes the stragglers in. That's back in chapter 9. But, but you can see there's probably still frustrations, jealousies, little vendettas. And so as soon as they hear that King David isn't bothered about them, that he doesn't want to hear their cases, that even though they're just in the, in the right, the king doesn't want to know. Well, what does that make you feel about this king? It wakes up all those old grievances, doesn't it? All those old frustrations with the king, all those old doubts about his heart, all of those memories about what he did to Bathsheba and Uriah 10, 15 years ago. It wakes up all of those old grievances and the people go away grumbling, preferring Absalom, turning away from the king. And Absalom's like doing this work for a few, a few years, dividing the people, winning their hearts over, whispering that you can't really trust the king. And then he goes off to Hebron, you remember where Hebron was? Hebron was David's original capital. He goes off there and says he's going to do some religious stuff. He's going to worship the Lord. It's pretty much the only time that Absalom ever talks about God is when he's off to pretend to worship and get his coup going. He invites 200 people who don't know what he's up to, but they just go along because the prince has invited them to a party. Um, and when they're all out, out of the city, Absalom declares himself king, um, and it all goes pear-shaped for David. The people have turned, their hearts are one. They've listened to Absalom. And, and while there's some, we'll get to them in a minute, while there's some who are faithful and loyal to David, it seems like there are plenty in Israel who really aren't anymore, who've believed the whispering of Prince Charming, who've turned against their king. I wonder how we might apply that to ourselves today. Well, you could apply it politically, couldn't you? Think about these people. Um, these people who have had a really, really good king, who've had a king who's given them peace, peace like they've never known it, peace like their grandparents and their great-grandparents never knew it. They've had lovely times, really happy, good, prosperous times under David, mostly. He's been a good king who actually has listened to the poor. All you have to do is flick back a chapter and look at the widow of Tekoa, a little, small, unimportant woman who's lost most of the important men in her family, and she's welcomed in to see the king right to the very top. So it's not true at all that David hasn't been listening to the people. Absalom has to get up early in the morning, doesn't he, to stop people from going to David. It's not true at all, but people believe. People are willing to believe the worst about their leaders. Very quickly, do you see how quickly they turn? After all those years of peace and good and prosperity and generosity and openness and justice, just like that, the people seem to turn. Not all of them, but a good many. I think that points to something in the human heart, doesn't it? Something about us, that we're often happy, or often really not very far away from believing the worst about people, especially about leaders. 
So you could apply it politically, but I don't really want to spend too much time on that today. Just think about, though, how we talk about our political leaders on both sides of the aisle, whatever party you're, you're into and follow. How quick we are to dismiss as stupid or to dismiss as just in it for themselves or to dismiss as unjust, to dismiss as whatever. We're so quick, aren't we? And so are the media and so are our hearts to look at authority figures, whether in politics or in any other place, and say, oh, they're not really here for us. They don't really know what they're doing. If I was the leader, I would sort it out. If I had my way, things would be much, much better. So our first application, you can think about all of our relationships with people and those who lead us, wherever that might be for you, and give them the benefit of the doubt. Perhaps they have done horrible things, in which case we need to speak truth um, to them. We don't need to just kind of lie down and be carpets and be walked all over. I'm not saying that at all. But what we shouldn't be is quick to condemn and quick to believe the worst about people. What we should be doing is quick to pray, quick to pray for them and to help them and to come alongside and say, look, I think we might be able to do this in a better way, or at least if you won't hear me, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to be on your side, on the side of our leaders who God has placed over us, even when that seems very uncomfortable and confusing as to why he's placed them over us. So we could apply it to politics, but we'll park that there for now. I think really we could apply it in our own situations today to God and to how we're so quick to think the worst of him. Aren't we when sad things happen? When tragedy strikes in the world, when we see it on the news, or when we hear it on the phone, or when we receive that text message, when we hear it from the front in church. When we've been praying for the Jenkins family for years now. When it was just a few months ago, and Glynis was completely fine. And then she was sick, and then it's all happened so quickly. And we, we think, where are you, God? Why aren't you listening to our prayers? I've been up in the morning. I've been coming to your throne, asking for justice, asking for fairness. It just doesn't seem fair, Lord, how this family's suffering, how I'm suffering, how the world is suffering. Why would you let that happen? I've been praying. Are you, are you not interested? I've been praying. Have you not heard us? I've been praying. Are you not just and good? Do you not want good for the world? And you see, we have Prince Charming on our shoulders, the Absalom in our hearts, who comes along and says, he's not really that good. He doesn't really want best for you. He doesn't really know what he's doing. If he's even there at all, he's pretty old and far away and just, I don't know, retiring now in some other dimension, not really keen on the world, if he even exists. Are we not prone to think of God like that? To think of God, to listen to Absalom? to look with our eyes and believe what our eyes see and to not listen to the voice in our hearts that says, trust him. Even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's not gone away. He's with you. He guides you and he's leading you to green pastures, to his home. We're so quick often, aren't we, to believe the worst about God and so to not pray, to not come to him, to not trust him and to walk away. That's probably the biggest question and the biggest objection, isn't it, in the world at the moment to belief in God. Well, how can there be a God if there's just so much suffering in the world? You see, our world, even our own hearts, believe that little Absalom, that voice of Prince Charming. So what should we do today? Well, resist that voice. We need to come and look at the king who's really there and not just trust with our, with our eyes, not just walk by sight, but walk by faith. Faith in the God who's stepped into this world, the God who is the man of sorrows, who's come to sweep away darkness, who's put in 
in place a plan of action that one day will lead to a world where there's no more suffering, no more tears, no more dark shadows, no more deep valleys, where we'll be home with him. That's our first thing this morning, is resist Prince Charming. And the way that you do that is by looking at the king who's in reverse. Let's have a look on at the story. Verse 13. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin upon us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, Your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. They haven't listened to Absalom. They've listened and watched David. They know what he's really like. They've experienced him working in their lives. And they're about to follow David. Well, follow David to where? David crosses over. And let's carry on reading. The king set out with his entire household following, following him. But he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him. And they halted at a place some distance away. All his men marched past him, along with all the Kerathites and Pelathites. And all the 600 Gittites who'd accompanied him from Gath marched before the king. So not everybody has turned against David but many have. And so David goes out of the city and crosses a little river that we'll get to in a minute and up another hill that you might be well familiar with. And David is running away. And David is in reverse. If you like, this is the way that David came into Jerusalem before. And this is David going back into the wilderness that he came from. You see how he's in, he's in reverse? This is the clock winding back. Instead of David having a nice peaceful retirement where he can forget about all of that sadness in the past and just rest, this is David going back, winding back the clock and re-experiencing all of that, going back out into the wilderness. Why is he doing it? Have a look in verse 14. He's doing it to save himself because Absalom is strong and he'll die. And, and not just himself... Do you see in the last verse, we must leave immediately or he'll move quickly and overtake us, bring ruin upon us and put the city to the sword. Why is David escaping from Jerusalem? Why is he running away without even a fight or a word to Absalom? Because he wants to rescue the people of the city. Did you see that? David takes that embarrassment. It's shame, isn't it, that such a great king like David would would be so undercut without him realising it. It's embarrassing. And then that he wouldn't even put up a fight, but he would walk outside the city gates, up a hill, weeping, crying, and praying, escaping, so that the people of the city would be safe. Do you see how David has changed in the last decade or so since the Bathsheba incident? Do you remember that? David had sinned, and so he said, one man has got to die so that I can escape. And in fact, it wasn't just Uriah who died, it was plenty of other soldiers who died with him to try and cover up that sin. So David has gone from being somebody who was willing to to kill a lot of people to save himself, one man, to being a man now who's willing to, to risk himself to save many people. I wonder if that reminds you of anybody. But let's carry on and see. David is in reverse, back into the wilderness, and he meets three friends on the way. I want us to learn some lessons from them. The king said to Ittai the Gittite, a man, a soldier who's walking past him, why should you come along with us? He's a foreigner, by the way. He's from where Goliath came from, down in Gath. He's a Philistine. Um, Why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You're a foreigner, an exile from your homeland. 
you came only yesterday. Not literally, but he hasn't been with David very long. He's changed his allegiance, though, from the Philistines, and he's coming and he's following David, but it's only happened recently. So, you know, fear dues, just go back, Itai. Save yourself. Don't bother coming with us. It's probably over. So you need to go back, save yourself and your family, and stay with Absalom. Today, shall I make you wander about with us when I do not know where I'm going? Go back and take your countrymen. May kindness and faithfulness be with you. But Itai replied to the king, As surely as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. David said to Ittai, Go ahead, march on. So Ittai the Gittite marched on with all his men and the families that were with him. Isn't that amazing? David is finished. He's an old man. Absalom is there, looks like a wonderful king, works hard, is a man of the people. But Ittai says, no, you're God's king. Whatever happens, whether we walk through valleys of darkness, whether we live and rejoice, or whether we die, I'm with you, I'm in all the way. As God lives, as you live, I'm in. Ittai's a man who's a foreigner. He's not an Israelite. Like I said, he's a Philistine. He doesn't really belong here. But David says he belongs here. David gives him an out, but Ittai says, I don't want it. Count me in. I'm following you. Let me ask you that question about friendship again. Do you have a friend like that who says to you, whatever happens, while you're living, I'll be with you? Are you a friend like that to somebody who you can say, while you're living, I'm with you? That's David's first friend, is Ittai, a loyal foreigner. And then they carry on. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on towards the desert. Zadok was there too, and all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark, before, the Ark of God, and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Zadok is David's second friend. Zadok and Abiathar, Abiathar the priests. If you're a fan of Champions League football, you'll know Zadok's theme tune. Zadok the priest is the Champions League music. But anyway, um, let's see what they do. They take the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, out of the city. They, um, they bring it out, like Saul brought it out back in the old, old stories. Why? Well, because that's the, the symbol of God's presence. They're saying if David's going out, well, then we better take God's presence with him so that he can be strong. But look what David says. The king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he'll bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let him do whatever seems good to him. That is an incredible statement. David says no to the priests. I don't want your lucky charm. I don't want to drag God along with me. No, God is God and I am not. You leave him where he said he wants to be, where he said his presence will be in Jerusalem, um, in the tabernacle, and I'll go. And if he's with me, well, good. He'll bring me back and restore me. If not, well, he's God, and I trust myself to him. Do you see, he's not like Saul, who thinks he can make a plan and bring God along with him, and if he just does enough religion, then it'll all go all right. No, David is the opposite. David says, God is God. He doesn't follow me around, blessing my plans and giving me power and kind of helping me fulfill all of my dreams. No, I'm the one who serves him. God is God and I am not. That's something we need to remember this morning, that we have plans for how the world should be. We have ideas of what God should do. But we need to take a leaf out of David's book here and say, no, it doesn't work like that. I am not God's boss. 
I don't get to say whether he exists or not. I don't get to say whether he's good or not. No, God is God, and I am not. God is good, even when I don't understand that. God is to be trusted, whether we live or die. Put your trust in him. So Zadok and Abiathar go back, and they become spies in, um, into uh, Absalom's palace, uh, and they chip in with lots of inf- helpful information later on in the next few chapters for David. But bad news comes. Bad news comes in verse 27. Um, sorry, it's not, it's verse 31. David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, his head covered, and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too, and they were weeping as they went. Now David had, to- had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Ahithophel is David's biggest advisor, his most important. All the stuff that he advises always comes good. He's a complete genius. So when he hears that Abiathar, so that, that Ahithophel, his advisor, has betrayed him, uh, it seems like all is lost. So what does David do? David prayed, O oh Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. That's a pretty obvious application for us, isn't it? When you're in a sticky situation when it seems like all is lost, like everything is against you, even the great Ahithophel has turned against you, what does David do? He prays. He shoots up an arrow prayer. He doesn't have to be in the temple. He doesn't have to be clean. He doesn't have to be anything. He's there on a hillside, weeping dirty with his head covered in complete despair. But he prays to the Lord. And what happens? Look at verse 32. When David arrived at the summit, a few minutes later, just after praying, Hushai, the archite, was there to meet him, his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, if you go with me, you'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king. I was your father's servant in the past, but now I'll be your servant. Then you can help me, my, help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. So what does he see as soon as he prays that prayer? Walks a few more steps, and there's the answer to his prayer. His third friend, Hushai. Um, Hushai was one of his close advisors as well. He's called the king's confidant. It was a job, somebody who would be with the king, who could, the king could just talk things through who could uh, be completely open with him. And Hushai turns up, who knows where he's been. But he comes and finds David in his time of need, just at the right moment, just when he's prayed. He's been sent by God to be God, God's answer to David's prayer. And he goes back, you can read about it in um, chapter 16. He goes back, and it's through him that everything gets put right, or at least begins to be put right. So three friends of David, the loyal foreigner who sticks with him through thick and thin, The priests who go back and and be spies, who show us that David trusts that God is God and that he is not. And Hushai, who turns up in the nick of time, who's God's answer to prayer, who goes back and begins to put everything right. There's a few lessons for there, aren't there? Let's be good friends. Let's pray quickly. Let's stick with Jesus through thick and thin. Let's not just do religion to try and get God on our side, but let's come and join his side and realize he is God. But there's more to it than this. I wonder if you've spotted it as we're going through. Did you see? We've put ourselves in David's shoes. We've shone a light on David, and it's a cast a me-shaped shadow. But what did I say at the beginning? No, when we cast a light on David, God's anointed chosen king, it's supposed to cast a Jesus-shaped shadow. Not just for helpful, practical applications for us, though all of those are good, and you should take those away and, and do them. Pick one of those friends and 
think, how can I be a Zadok this week? How can I be a Hushai? How can I be an Ittai this week? So do that. That's hopefully a practical thing to take away. But even more important than all of that is to see who David is pointing towards. Did you see? Did you recognize some places in this? The Kidron Valley? It's a bit of an obscure one. You'll find that in John 18. Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley and then walked up the Mount of Olives. You'll find that in Luke 22 and a little bit later in John 18 and lots of other places in the four gospel accounts where you'll find Jesus walking across the Kidron Valley and then walking up the Mount of Olives, praying to pray. You'll find him walking back down the Mount of Olives, weeping like David was weeping. You'll find him... Um, with meeting people on the way, Gentiles and people kind of who are outside who shouldn't really be following him, but they say, I want to follow you. And it all happens around Jerusalem as Jesus goes in and out. And do you see what Jesus was doing? I think he knew he was doing this, that he was acting out, reenacting David's journey, going out up the Mount of Olives, weeping and praying. David is for us a picture of Jesus. So let's go back quickly through those friends and see what we learn if they're responding to Jesus, if they're pictures of us, not just what we should do as good friends, but pictures of how we're to respond to Jesus. Think about, well, why is David, to begin with, before we get to the friends, why is David, why is Jesus leaving that city in the first place? For David, he's under God's judgment, something we haven't mentioned yet. This is from back in chapter 12. When David sins, God says, you'll be judged, and there'll be blood in your household. You've spilled innocent blood, and so and there'll be a sword, there'll be blood, bloodshed in your household. This is the beginning of it. This is God's judgment on David. You see, David has to flee Jerusalem. He has to go back into the wilderness because he has sinned. And he rescues lots of people through that by letting Absalom take Jerusalem. But it's because he sinned. Well, what about Jesus? How does that shed light on him? Well, Jesus is the other way around, isn't he? Jesus walked outside of the city gates of Jerusalem, walked up another hill called Golgotha, and died there. One man. Why? Because he was under the judgment of God? Well, yes, because he died in the dark, but Jesus is the most perfect man who's ever lived. Jesus is somebody who, when you read the stories of him, they're just mind-blowing. How could somebody be like him and always be right, always be saying kind and generous and gentle things to people who need to be lifted up? always saying firm and truthful things to people who need to be taken down a peg. Jesus is always perfect in everything he does and says and, and is. He is God's king like David never could have been. And yet he dies under God's judgment. Why is that? Well, it's one man dying so that many would be rescued. Do you see, for David, it was because he'd done wrong. For Jesus, it was because we have done wrong. That Jesus, who had no sin, became sin, took it all on his own shoulders, bore it, took it to the cross, and died under God's judgment up on that hill, weeping as people came past and mocked him. Just read through the next, next chapter and you'll see three enemies of Jesus. Uh, sorry, three enemies of David. And we won't have time to get into it today. But go and see how those point us and remind us of Jesus as well. Ahithophel, who hangs himself, the betrayer, like Judas did. Ziba, who tries to rip off David like many people did with Jesus, as Judas did too. Shimei, who curses David, as many people cursed Jesus. David doesn't turn his back. David doesn't strike him down. David says, let God be God. 
And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. You see, when we look at David, we see Jesus. The first thing that we see, he's the one who takes away our sin, the one who dies so that many can be freed, the one who goes through the darkest valley under God's judgment so that when we walk through that same valley of death, we'll know God's presence. We'll know it's never because we're being judged by God. It's never because he's abandoning us, but that he's right there with us, with your right hand in his, with his staff to guide on the way home. That's the first thing we learn about Jesus from David. And the second and third and fourth are from the friends. Ittai, what's Ittai like? Well, Ittai is somebody who's a foreigner who comes and gets to 